Harvard Divinity School. Psychedelics and the Future of Religion, Race and Exoticism in Global Psychedelic Spirituality, October 26, 2023. My name is Charles Stang, and I have the pleasure of serving as the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to this evening's event, which is part of our very popular series on psychedelics and the future of religion, now in its third year. This series is part of the center's larger, ongoing and evolving initiative called Transcendence and Transformation, or TNT for short. If you're interested in TNT, we'll put a link to that page in the chat function. As always, the best way to stay abreast of what we're doing here at the center and its programming is to sign up for our weekly newsletter, which you can do on the center's landing page. We're delighted to have with, have with us this evening professors Amanda Lucia and Arun Saldana for a panel discussion on race and, and exoticism in global psychedelic spirituality. Before introducing our guests, I want to thank the CSWR staff for their help in arranging for this event. And I want to thank Jeff Bro and Paul Gillis-Smith, two HDS students who are leading a reading group called Psychedelics Sacred and Subversive, where they have read some of the work of professors Lucia and Saldana, and so they come very well prepared for this panel discussion. So thank you, Paul, Jeff, and the other members of that group. So let me say a brief word about the aim and scope of this panel and its theme, race and exoticism in global psychedelic spirituality. Modern spirituality doesn't always conform to stereotypical or even typical notions of religion. And this is especially true when psychedelics are involved. Today's panelists have both done groundbreaking research into the development of new religious and new spiritual movements in the so-called psychedelic underground, be it in the Goa rave scene or transformational festivals like Burning Man. Today's panel will focus on race, religious exoticization, and the desire for transformation among so-called spiritual but not religious pr practitioners or SBNRs in the burgeoning psychedelic underground. With the help of Professor Lucia and Saldana, we hope today to think critically about the psychedelic underground as a site of new religious formation. We wanna ask questions such as, what do we gain from considering the rave scene as a spiritual gathering? In what ways are psychonauts incorporating religious concepts and iconography into their worldviews? And when, they, and when do such borrowings become appropriative or harmful? And most critically, Who's welcome into these psychedelic and transformational settings and who is excluded and how are these norms perpetuated? Our two guest speakers are uniquely and perfectly qualified to help us ask and address such questions. Without further ado then, let me introduce them. Dr. Amanda Lucia is professor of religious studies at the University of California, Riverside, where her work focuses especially on the religious exportation, appropriation, and circulation of Hinduism. Her 2014 book entitled Reflections of Amma, Devotees in a Global Embrace, is an ethnographic study of Amma devotees in the United States and interpretations of the so-called hugging saint through the American po uh, politics of multiculturalism. 
and expanding from pop followers of AMA to attendees of yogic and transformational festivals, Professor Lucia published White Utopias, the Religious Exoticism of Transformational Festivals in 2020. It's a powerfully argued and nuanced ethnography of transformational festivals ranging from the yoga-centered Shakti and Bhakti Fests to the annual Burning Man Festival in Nevada. The book takes seriously the, the transformational potential of these gatherings while interrogating the predominant whiteness of participants. Professor Lucia's talk today is entitled Awakening the Third Eye, Hierarchies of Consciousness in the New Age. Dr. Arun Sadana is Professor of Geography, Environment and Society at the University of Minnesota. His theoretical work is inspired primarily by continental philosophy, specifically the work of Gilles Deleuze and Alain Badiou. His 2007 book, Psychedelic White, Goa Trance and the Viscosity of Race, is an ethnographic study of rave tourism and the global trance scene in Goa, India. The book centers on the racial dynamics permeating psychedelic rave culture, and Saldana argue, argues that race should be considered a material process of the viscosity or stickiness of certain racialized bodies. His theory of racial viscosity illuminates the invisible barriers that make homogeneous racial spaces difficult for people of other races to penetrate. Psychedelic white remains an essential text for understanding the global psychedelic underground and its racializing tendencies. Professor Saldana's talk today is entitled Inner Space, Outer Space, Psychedelics Under Catastrophe. So here's how this evening one will unfold. I will soon disappear from the screen and professors Lucia and Saldana will speak in turn for about 20, 25 minutes. Then I will reappear and moderate the discussion, first offering them an opportunity to engage each other and then opening to questions from the audience. So, Amanda, the floor is yours. I've got it. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for coming. And um, I'm going to share my screen. But before I start that, I'd just like to mention uh, this is a difficult time for a lot of people who are probably in the audience today. And it is uh, a time also that I'm coming to you from unceded Tongva lands. There's so much to say about injustice today. And instead of belaboring preambles that don't result in action, I'm just gonna jump into the paper and hopefully spark some ideas that will turn into action for others and myself. So over the course of what has somehow become 30 years of fieldwork in the new age and spiritual and yogic scenes with which I'm familiar, I've been struck by and often put off by its hierarchical and exclusionary ideals. In the past, I've been relatively charitable, showing how it draws uh, on the evolutionary development of the self that was expressed in mystical and ascetical traditions across time. Others have been less so and have concluded that it's rather an expression of neoliberalism's demand for the perfection of the self. However, as I will argue today, these spiritual evolutionary models originate much earlier than neoliberalism and can be traced to 19th century race science. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to show just a little quick parody that was uh, 
made viral by Charlotte Dinashi in 2017, and hopefully that will help. It's a self-parody of her own scene, as she writes on her website as a sound healer and astrologer, quote, there is nothing so beautiful, so brave, so bold as to enter this world and to dare to evolve. There we go. There's a bit of a preamble I'm going to say. I'm more spiritual than you. How do I know? My feathers are longer and I drunk more ayahuasca. I'm more spiritual than you. It's simply true. My eyes are brighter, sheepies bigger and my clothes are whiter. I'm more spiritual than you. And it's a fact. I've been to Bali and changed my name to Matahari. I'm more spiritual than you. I don't drink booze. I do frog venom and I don't take drugs. I take medicine. I'm more spiritual than you. All right. Hopefully that gave you a bit of a laugh to start off on what is a rather difficult topic. Uh, these are the lyrics. And note that ayahuasca is referenced in the very first verse. And it only takes until verse three for her to outline explicitly the hierarchy of drugs and the claiming of the indigenous term medicine. The song parodies how the evolutionary schema of spiritual growth and development and transformation has given rise to egoism and hierarchy based in an economy of esoteric knowledge and practice. So today I wanna to investigate some of this common sense of the contemporary new age yoga and spiritual scenes. I begin with the hypothesis that these evolutionary paradigms are in fact quite old. And in searching for a starting point, I began with my growing concern that scholars have overlooked the radiating influence of the Theosophical Society on modern esoteric philosophical metaphysical scenes. So I begin there and to find a toehold in the morass of information that is the Theosophical Society writings, I focused on the third eye. So like other ideas in the esoteric spiritual scene, the notion of the third eye has become commonplace and commonsensical and it connects yogic, metaphysical and psychedelic aspirations. In each arena, awakening the third eye is a goal that depends on bodily practices, that is including yoga, meditation, ritual or drug ingestion and promises consciousness expansion and potentially paranormal or even supernatural abilities. In what follows, I trace its uh, popularity to 19th century theosophical materials on the third eye, which aim to show how it became important, how one can awaken it, and importantly, who can awaken it. This latter point re reveals the rude source of contemporary evolutionary thinking in metaphysical communities. So in preface as well, uh, as the title of this webinar suggests, I'll be presenting some stomach churning racist and ableist ideas that weigh heavily with exoticism, anti-blackness, anti-Semitism and fascism. And I'll try to allow the texts to speak for themselves and to give warnings throughout as the grossest forms arise. Um, but please do take care of yourself in any way that you need to. And I'm very much aware viscerally that these are violent and emotionally exhausting topics. So part one, secrecy, hierarchy, and the circulation of esoteric knowledge. 
Unfortunately, with the truncated time frame today, one of the things that I have to forego is an in-depth preface to 19th century esotericism for those who may be unfamiliar. In short, here's a few brief points to keep in mind before proceeding into the heart of the Theosophical Society materials. So number one, uh, alternative and exoticized spiritualities um, became entertainment for upper classes, particularly women, and the quest for metaphysical experience, including paranormal or supernatural abilities, became a preoccupation and an entertainment for Anglo-Europeans in the 19th century, particularly educated and elite classes, particularly women, and this occurred all at the height of empire and in the Victorian age. If you want to read more on this, uh, Simone Natale's book, uh, Supernatural Entertainments, is excellent. Um, two, science. So this preoccupation was deeply informed by newfound interest in science, including the possibility for self-experimentation and the questioning of the boundaries of the known that had been challenged by new technological developments. Three, as mentioned, empire. So this period saw the height of European and British colonial empires, and it was informed by that confrontation, both in its attraction to radical others and in its arrogant assumptions of Anglo-European superiority. For the book, and this is very important, it often gets overlooked, but the book became a valued resource among the esoterically curious. And there was a widespread publication of guidebooks that charted the possibilities of metaphysical experience and non-Western worldviews. And then five, self-experimentation. So combining these factors suggested that literate individuals could explore their inner constitutions and expand their consciousness and even cultivate supernatural abilities through that self-experimentation. Okay, so next section, planes of existence and human diversity. In colonial and orientalist accounts, India and Egypt loomed large as deep resources of ancient wisdom presumed to have gone degenerate in the modern period and in need of European salvaging. Theosophy and the Theosophical Society was one of the most famous Orientalist projects of the 19th century that sought to revive this ancient wisdom of the East, quote unquote. Helena Blavatsky, its famed Russian occultist co-founder, wrote Isis Unveiled, a master key to the mysteries of ancient and modern science and theology in 1877, her account of esoteric knowledge, which she claimed was transmitted automatically as she channeled the words of Tibetan masters, some of whom she supposedly had met in her travels in the high Himalayan regions. Both of these claims are highly contested. But her writing on paranormal skills and paranormal skills garnered fame for the Theosophical Society. And as her books circulated, news centers and their accompanying libraries proliferated around the globe. At its height, the Theosophical Society boasted 40,000 members, and importantly, one of its key features was that it splintered into hundreds of different societies and organizations, some yogic, some occultic, some metaphysical. And this is one of the reasons that the influence on the contemporary has not been properly accounted for in the scholarly literature, um, because some of these ideas and lineages are quite hard to trace. So theosophical writings were engaged in an empirical project, that of channeling, describing, and mapping the nature of metaphysical worlds, not only in the cosmos, but also in the subtle body. 
And in what follows, I argue that it's from Theosophical Society publications that much of the hierarchical and evolutionary common sense that informs spiritual scenes today derives. So in The Secret Doctrine, which was published in 1888, Blavatsky sets out explicitly to, quote, deal with the history of occultism as contained in the lives of the great adepts of the Aryan race. The 1575-page tome blends wisdom drawn from Brahmanical, Buddhist, Egyptian, and Kabbalistic sources into an unwieldy amalgam of the cosmos and metaphysics intended to educate the, quote, student of the occult. In Blavatsky's reading, race emerges as a feature of humanity in general, divorced from pigmentation or nationality that defines existence across time. In her complex cosmology, she draws in part from the Hindu cycles of time in the yugas. Humankind emerges only in the fifth root race when humanity separates from nature and the sexes separate from each other and creation, quote, evolves from the natural to the feminine and ultimately to the current phallic age. Keeping with other 19th century race theorists, such as Arthur de Gobineau and Isaac Taylor, Blavatsky imagined an Aryan race based in part on Max Muller's linguistic theories that was connected in this contemporary phallic age. So you can see from this map how Caucasian goes through Europe, but then also into India and North Africa. Given her interest in Indic symbiology, she also denoted this historical moment pictorially with the swastika, an ancient Indian symbol of swa or good health, a symbol that is also found in many cultures globally. But it was her student and friend, a dedicated theosophist, Yuliana Glinka, who developed a proprietary relationship with, and perhaps even published, the first edition of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, um, and just a warning for anti-Semitism here. The infamous anti-Semitic propaganda text imagined Jews as Satan's army on earth. Like her friend and mentor, Blavatsky, Blavatsky Glinka's claims to be in, quote, direct contact with the world beyond the grave, which gave her authority to induct others into the mysteries of theosophy, and in Glinka's case, to unveil the, quote, unquote, truth about the Jews. This example reveals the controversy surrounding Blavatsky and her cadre of occultists, which debates even today whether the Theosophical Society was intentionally fascist or whether their ideas were co-opted by Nazis and collaborators in the second generation like Glinka to terrible ends in the 20th century. Religion scholar James Santucci differentiates between the commonplace understanding of race as defined by physical characteristics and Blavatsky's assertion that there are quote, spiritual, psychic, intellectual, and physical differences among the seven root races, a major temporary or major temporary divisions of humanity in a global round, end quote. He argues instead that Blavatsky's cosmology or quote, the physical aspect of race is but a minor characteristic in relation to the larger issue of the place of the monad. That's a technical term meaning um, uh, the self-born or swayambhuva is the Sanskrit she's drawing on within a vast system of spiritual and physical cycles in which monads are progressing toward ever higher forms of existence, end quote. 
In contrast, Peter Lavenda argues, and I think convincingly, that there are substantive through lines from theosophy to Nazism, particularly in the writings of some of the theos theosophically inclined members of the SS. For example, there is parallels in the assertion of caste systems of races, the importance of ancient alphabets or runes, the superiority of the Aryans, cosmic truths encoded in pagan myths, and concentration on initiated astrology and astronomy, and of course, the supreme occult significance of the swastika. Even if it wasn't the intent of Blavatsky's writings, the second generation of theosophists relied on her ideas to germinate their own conclusions to Aryan supremacy, which develops over the course of the 20th century to signify Caucasian supremacy. Certainly, whether one agrees with Santushi's apologetics or not, there's an evolutionary schema in Theosophy's cosmology that some persons are more equipped or better suited to ascend to higher astral planes than others. Although Blavatsky critiques British, quote, arrogance in their condemnation of the, quote, dark Indians, her very next chapter in The Secret Doctrine is entitled, quote, The Races with the Third Eye. Therein, she explains that the inner senses were first innate in the human races, but then they were atrophied during racial growth and material development. The goal then for the student of the occult is to reawaken the dormant third eye, which she tells readers is now, quote, witnessed only by the pineal gland. Blavatsky may have been one of the first bricolers, and in the next passage, she argues that the third eye is connected to the Hindu god Shiva, the yogic practice of celibacy, the amphibian third eye in lizards, the pineal gland, and Descartes' seat of the soul. Blavatsky's notion of race encompasses the whole of humanity and all life forms, which she argues is on a singular path of evolution. She uses Hindu cosmology as evidence for this path of racial evolution, deploying and elaborating on karma theory and the incarnation of Manu, the primordial man presented in the Dharmashastras over aeons of time. Parsing Blavatsky's voluminous writings carefully, Santushi correctly identifies that Blavatsky's notion of race is not our commonplace understanding of race, and that according to her, humanity and other life forms move together through stages of time. However, she also identifies sub-races that exist within the seven root races, and she uses this idea of sub-races to explain why there are different levels of evolution among humans who exist coterminously. So on the third eye, she explains that the third eye was once part of humans' physical form, but disappeared into only a mental and spiritual form because of the depravity of mankind. And you can see the longer quote here, it's a bit jumbled, so I, I summarized it. Blavatsky's ideas of race and subrace both adhere to an evolutionist Fibonacci-like sequence, wherein all life progresses on a trajectory of development, but within each race, there are differentiations between cultures that exist on an evolutionary model. So see, for example, the next passage that I'm going to quote, where Blavatsky divides between A, patriarchal nomads, B, savages who had barely learned fire, and C, karmically favored urbanites who, quote, built cities and cultivated arts and the sciences. 
She then transitions into a different register where she creates a mythology supposedly expounding on the Uttarakhanda and the Padma Purana, two Hindu texts, of the last survivors of the, quote, fair child of the White Island, who had separated themselves from the accursed races who lived in the jungles and underground and were different too from the, quote, golden yellow race, which, quote, became in its turn black with sin. So in these passages, it's clearly visible that the romantic turn to the savage and his psychedelic and spiritual wisdom is based in the conviction that as an uncivilized human, he has not been corrupted by civilization. And, and sorry, I'm quoting the term savage and I'm gonna to continue to use it and I, I apologize, it's a difficult and offensive term. Although the ideal rightly confronts the terrors and tragedies of modernity, it's the, other, it's the other hand of the civilizational narrative that claims that modernity and civilization only for Anglo-Europeans. So this is the deeply problematic foundation of the turn toward indigenous wisdom that we hear so popularly in contemporary spiritual and psychedelic scenes. For example, in the notion of indigenous futures, which proliferates wherever plant medicines like peyote or mescaline or ayahuasca have become fashionable. These passages also reveal ample evidence, contra Santushi, that for pigment and, and nation-oriented racialized hierarchies also operate in Blavatsky's or evolutionary schema, as well as her singular notion of human race. The fact that Blavatsky bases her conclusions in such large part, though not exclusively, of course, on Hindu notions of karma and primordial man cosmology, or Manu, also invites the question as to whether Hindu theories of caste impacted her thinking, depending, despite her critique of contemporary Brahmins elsewhere as, quote, debauched and arrogant. So I'll have to leave that idea, uh, which is quite provocative, for another day and move on to the second generation of theosophy and beyond. So as we saw with the linkages between theosophy and the SS, in the second generation, race hierarchies and racist symbology become even more direct. And here I'm gonna to turn to one of her contemporaries and, and juniors, Charles Leadbeater, um, and his account of the subtle body and clairvoyance as illustrated, particularly in man, visible and invisible rather, um, point, uh, published in 1903. In his account, it's only the quote, developed man who can serve as a channel for higher force. And humans are understood to be on a path of evolution from the savage to the unselfish man, end quote. Leadbeater's optimism that mankind can learn the skills of clairvoyance is predicated upon the advances of the higher races. He writes, quote, any fairly advanced and cultured man among the higher races of mankind has already consciousness fully developed in the astral body and is perfectly capable of employing it as a vehicle if only he were in the habit of doing so, end quote. After a long explanation of the different colors of the astral body, he writes of the spiritual evolution of mankind with the dual authority of theosophical doctrine and race science as he describes the different astral bodies of different races. He identifies, quote unquote, savage lower races with colors and their astral bodies that reveal their deceit, treachery, and avarice, their propensity to sudden violence, their selfishness and pride, greed, fear, and propensity to fetish worship. 
Yet even, and I'm not gonna read out this quote because it's violent and um, you can read it yourself. Yet even with this overt anti-Blackness, Leadbeater affirms Blavatsky's position that Anglo-European civilization developed physical and intellectual achievements to the detriment of psychic and spiritual ones. Thus, one must look at the, this is the developed man. Thus, one must look at the ancient mystics of the East for the future of astral and clairvoyant technologies. He outlines this in his 1927 book on the chakras where he connects Aryans and Indians through biology, suggesting that, quote, some Indians might succeed in doing so, that is awakening their Kundalini energy as their bodies are by hereditary more adaptable, heredity more adaptable than most others, end quote. And you can see here, this is his chart of the different astral body colors and the qualities to which they are related. It's hard to overstate the importance of theosophical ideas in shaping the esoteric spiritual scenes of the 20th and 21st centuries, building on their precedent of bricolage, meaning pick and mix, is a quality inherent to the metaphysical scene. Theosophical ideas were adopted by innumerable spiritual entrepreneurs and repackaged as original thought and practice throughout the 20th century. Their diffusion resulted in some of the most foundational building blocks of new age discourse today that appears as common sense. For example, ideas like manifesting, vibrations, energy work, chakra healing, astral travel, spiritual work or evolution and third eye awakening. For example, to pull one example from 1970, Vera Stanley Adler, who to my knowledge had no overt ties to theosophy at all, reiterated their ideas nearly verbatim in her book, The Finding of the Third Eye. Therein, she presents the third eye as a commonplace trait known to the ancient mystics of Egypt, India, and China, and tells her audience of quote-unquote civilized Anglo-European readers that they must develop and reawaken what these ancients already knew. In her view, becoming in tune with the vibrations of the universe becomes a central theme in this evolutionary cycle of spiritual development. She writes that thought vibrations can now be measured with science and that intelligent persons register high vibrations while imbeciles register vibrations that are feeble and slow. And note here the reference to manifesting, which now has become so popular, primarily as a result of the 2006 book, The Secret by Rhonda Byrne now a film and a global movement based in, quote, the law of attraction. Note that the underlying racism here also is accompanied by ableism, and it's not difficult to draw a through line from Adler's understanding of the developed man and his capacity to transmit vibrations to the more nefarious applications and policy of racialized eugenics in the late 19th and 20th centuries. There's also a confluence in these images and those of early 20th century muscular Christianity. Okay, so to conclude with just a few thoughts. It's important to put this 19th century history of esotericism together with the ways in which awakening the third eye became intertwined with explorations of the inner landscape with psychedelics, yoga, meditation, um, and all kinds of uh, new age related practices. 
We are, of course, uncomfortably familiar with the racist hierarchies that informed the disciplines of neuroscience and psychiatry in the 19th century, but likely not as familiar with the racializations that substantiated hierarchies of spiritual evolution, development, and transformation to which psychedelics were put to use. Further, in science, there's been a directed recalibration, but there's not really been a substantive interrogation of how indigenous, indic, meaning Hindu Buddhist tantric traditions that originated in India, became the mascots and the spirit guides for the psychedelic counterculture, which of course was predominantly led by white men. Even today, here's another example. Even today, as I wrote in White Utopias, many spiritual utopias reinforce white heteronormativity, indigenous and Indic fetishism and anti-black racism. But it's not only that the scene is racially stagnant, but that it actually may be regressing. So in, in many ways, in 1960s, in the 1970s, there was a foregrounding of Black metaphysicals and psychedelia, much more so than today. For example, we might think about Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis, and Sun Ra as leaders in metaphysical culture, as historian Matthew Harris has shown. But is there space for radical Black futurity in psychedelic spiritual communities today? And as we sit with this question, I suggest that a renewed interrogation of the common sense of evolutionism in the scene. Thanks very much. And some blotter paper to end. Thanks, Amanda. Um, hi, everyone. I'm coming to you from Minneapolis from my uh, very messy office. Thanks very much to Charles Stang for uh, inviting me. Thanks to um, all of you who have been engaging my work. I'm really looking forward to the uh, to the questions you might have um, later on. And uh, thanks, Amanda. We uh, we actually spoke uh, for a while, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I knew of her book, and I was really enthusiastic about. Uh, someone else working on white utopianism and looking at psychedelic countercultures through a critical race lens because that doesn't often happen. And so I felt uh, immediate affinity with someone who was um, doing a similar critique of the uh, psychedelic uh, um, tendencies of uh, modern uh, capitalism and neoliberalism and looking that through a, a through a, a longer historical lens and so um a lot of my comments today will be um will be uh, complementing uh, what Amanda has written about and what she talked about uh, today uh there's the, a few things that I will immediately uh, add to 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 what uh, she was just talking about I want to bring in the the dimension of apocalypticism uh, the end of the world and so on because that is of course something that in theosophy would have been uh part of the cosmic imagination you you have new worlds and new races emerging uh, because older ones are sort of uh, not competing uh, uh, firm uh, strongly enough um, and uh, this is the evolutionary paradigm that they were sort of um, adopting uh, and then also this whole idea of uh, the eclecticism and the bricolage that Amanda talked about, uh, this this borrowing from so many traditions, that happens from a particular center, uh, from a particular subjectivity, and that is the subjectivity of white man. And so, uh, in this 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 uh, extremely eclectic um, 
amalgamation of traditions and of spiritual systems that happens in theosophy and going all the way into the 1960s counterculture and others uh, being revived today. Uh, my uh, my basic argument is there is a center there, even though it is a very sort of unstable center, and, and that is a, a, a wide subjectivity. That is my sort of a critical complementary um, argument uh, there. Okay, I'm going to share the screen. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to uh, look carefully at the time so that I don't use up too much of our uh, very precious time these days. And uh, yes, I, I appreciate Amanda's comment about the uh, the tough world that we're in. And I do have uh, um, uh, something to say about that. So these are tentative thoughts, uh, bear with me. Uh, they might be a little bit chaotic. Uh, I'm returning to this on your invitation, uh, but it's not, it's not actual research that I'm doing right now. To start off with, um, what I'm uh, really interested in um, is, is a deeper question about where does the interest in psychedelic uh, drugs come from? how to think about this historically and geographically and in terms of how this propensity to uh, to change brains radically and uh, insert them in, 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 into, into new imaginations. Why is that so prevalent in white modernity? And, and how to how to think about that in a, in a, in a more sort of structural framework? Um, and then I very quickly come to the idea of that this is a, a, an extension by other means of coloniality. And there is what I would call a structure of feeling of exploration that goes back all the way to the Renaissance, where you have a courting of um, lethal conditions, uh, an, an interest in the unknown, an interest in the weird, an interest in the exotic that is really stamped with the way that white people have looked beyond the shores of their own culture. Um, exploration, as you know, uh, from the beginning, from the, the, the times that the Portuguese and the Spanish were island hopping and you know trying to find new places for, uh, for uh, 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 conquest and, and, and making profits, uh, was very capital intensive. Um, and it was a vanguard for what you know we would call commodification. You're sort of commodifying human beings in slavery. You're com commodifying lands. You're commodifying resources. You're commodifying um, trade routes. Uh, you're commodifying cities, and you're making money of it. And so, you know, what I'm what I would like to add to Amanda's uh, framework is this, you know, basic Marxist idea that col coloniality and, and 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 colonialism and the interest in other cultures was also a drive to commodify and to make money. Um, you all know about this tragedy that happened with the five uh, millionaires who uh, were killed in this implosion of this submersible uh, called the Titan, which was, uh, which was a kind of a very elite form of tourism looking at the Titanic wreck um, <clears throat> in the Atlantic Ocean. And so this is one example of, of what I'm talking about. Like, why are people drawn to this? Why does it tend to be men who want to climb the highest mountain? What is this extremophilia that is sort of built into um, a, a, a very European way of traveling 
which is capital intensive and which is, uh, 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 you know, again, extremely risky and um, and goes all the way into outer space, as I will uh, very quickly say. And so I'm just, you know, obsessed myself with this uh, this maniacal, this obsessive, this compulsive way in which uh, traveling um, has been sort of this, this, uh, this, this uh, at the fringes of 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 colonial modernity, uh, this way of expanding and um, in in ever uh, widening circles, uh, white modernity has been englobing the planet and beyond. Uh, every inch of the earth has been explored. And I'm interested in that desire and how that fits into um, not just coloniality, but also in, in, in capitalism. <clears throat> it's fair to say that drugs um, were uh, uh, part and parcel of this, this deterritorialization of white desire and of course many people have written about the fact that it was it was uh, overwhelmingly men who were engaged with this and so the white man subject from uh, from the times of exploration and the scientific revolution in the 17th century all the way to romanticism um this white man subject has been interested in uh in mind expansion just like it it was or he was in uh, geographical expansion uh, there's a fascinating 1563 book that i've looked at a little bit uh, by a portuguese doctor in what was then uh, the capital of the portuguese empire the indian ocean garcia da orta and uh, it's called symbols of drugs of india and so as you know the spice trade was what the portuguese and then the dutch and the english were really interested in usurping in the indian ocean world and so uh, you know part of the argument is that that drugs were from the beginnings of global capitalism, um, not just a source of immense profit, but also a, uh, a vehicle for the expansion of the mind, just like there was an expansion of companies and of states. I'm skipping a, a number of things here in the interest of time. Um, there is a way, uh, as Charlie said, I, I do work a lot with, with the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, and I can talk about that more in the q and if, if necessary. But since this panel is about race, I do want to uh, say uh, just a few words about how I approach race. Uh, race is very often thought of as a, 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 a grid in which you have a dichotomy between self and other, white and black and brown and, you know, other kinds of races, so-called, which are othered. And Deleuze and Guattari uh, have a different kind of ontology of the social in which it's much more sort of degrees of deviation and uh, a sort of a spectrum of differences still with white man in the middle, which is looking at this array of differences from a, a, a fairly secure uh, standpoint. But it's really about uh, about the dynamism of race and the fact that you have, you know, just like in theosophy, sometimes extremely complicated ways in which the white identity appropriates and even, uh, you know, uh, gobbles up these other kinds of differences. And so it's a much more dynamic way of thinking about white identity that, that, that I would say is really important here. And so when we're talking about, you know, how psychedelics fits in and how um, an interest in other cultures, non-Western cultures fits in, 
I think that's really um, that's really uh, relevant. I'm going to skip this quote, um, but it's but it's uh, it's a great place in a thousand plateaus where Deleuze and Guattari provide this kind of more dynamic. Um, and I think more accurate way of looking at at race as a system, which is uh, which is incredibly uh, versatile. Um, and so, white man as a subject, you know, in anthropology, in travel writing, in the imagination of the species, is always going to be in the center in these pictures. It's 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 literally so. But I want to. Uh, I want to emphasize that it's it's uh, it's it's very dynamic, and that there's this kind of uh, gradual appropriation of exoticism, which also changes the way that white people look at themselves. And so, white people can criticize whiteness themselves, uh, but th by that very process, actually uh, underline their their very whiteness. And so, this is you know one of the arguments that I uh, offer in in uh, uh, in psychedelic white in that ethnography. Um, okay, um, there's um, catastrophe is in the title of my talk, so I want to say a few things here. Uh, I don't need to remind anyone here, but I think it's worth sort of repeating. Uh, that uh, capitalism is a very destructive system uh, by mainstream economists. This is fully uh, acknowledged and even embraced. Schumpeter talks about creative destruction. And so uh, investments have to be made continuously. And there's a cutthroat competition which lead um, uh, uh, capital or 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 or, or uh, firms or individuals with, with money to invest to always invest more and then the returns have to be reinvested and so capital as a process uh, a sort of an inhuman uncontrollable process which no individual capitalist or state can actually contain self augments and spreads and so the whole idea in Deleuze and Guattari is that capital is intrinsically globalizing it's in intrinsically sort of spreading across the planet and then of course as I will shortly argue it also has to leave the planet um, capital is like this sort of like uh, almost um, you know inhuman uh, uh, agency that uh, that that wants to get into outer space crises and Marxist theory are of course uh, necessarily the case and will produce more areas for profit, so the whole climate crisis, uh, of the whole transition to green energy, uh, as you all know, you know, is, is producing new 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 propensities for, for capital accumulation. Anything can be commodified from our genetic code to the wind, to uh, any kinds of sexuality, to anything to do with, um, with uh, 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 our brain states and so on. And of course, all of these things are being racialized um, as uh, as we see the Black Lives Matter protests, for example, coming together with the climate justice movement. That is one area of concern that I've been uh, that I've been following. Um, these are just some of the books that that will be relevant to looking at capitalism as this very creative and productive process, which intrinsically differentiates populations and puts them into hierarchical um, positions. Uh, so this is in a more sort of material way in which populations are pitted against each other through a division of labor, through things like slavery, uh, uh, environmental injustices, and technology. Um, so uh, 
very quickly, the, the most famous geographer is probably David Harvey. So for those of you who know uh, his idea of the spatial fix, um, I mentioned this in the abstract for my talk. Uh, it's a very useful concept. It basically means that in the in urban space, in sort of material space, uh, like uh, gentrification, like bridges, like um, uh, internet uh, infrastructure, airports, uh, hotels, theme parks, there is this fixing of the flow of capital. So money has to fix itself somewhere. It's restlessly going around the globe, trying to find a place to sink itself into so that there can be profits for, um, for uh, you know, mainly for shareholders. And so this fixity of capital uh, of the spatial fix is what Harvey sort of wants to talk about. And so capital is flowing and then it fixes itself literally on spots on the planets or beyond the planets. It's a fix also in the in the sense of like a fix to a problem. So like, you know, you're familiar with the, with the term te the technological fix. And so it's a play on that, on that um sense of fix but it's also sort of like getting a fix like you would of addictive drugs and so there's a temporary satisfaction of this uh ceaseless and proliferating desire of capital to um to to find new 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 places and new sites for um for profits Capitalism, we might say, is addicted to geographic expansion, much as it is addicted to technological change and endless expansion through economic growth. Globalization is the contemporary version of capitalism's long-standing and never-ending search for a spatial fix to its crisis tendencies. There is a long... I'm sorry, I can't read. There is a long... Um, <clears throat> History to these spatial fixes, there is a deep continuity in the production of space under capitalist social relations and imperatives. There is, from this perspective, nothing particularly new or surprising about globalization since it has been going on since at least 1492, if not before. This brings us to this guy. And... Um, Again, you might be saying at this point, okay, why is Arun talking about Elon Musk? Like I thought that this was a talk on psychedelics. Uh, my argument is precisely that at least some of the interest in um, in the in the potentialities of psychedelics might actually fit into. Uh, there's no coincidence that this that 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 this resurgence of interest in outer space is happening exactly at the same time as there is an interest in uh, psychedelia again. Um, just like in the 1960s, I don't think there's a coincidence that there was an interest in LSD and other hallucinogens um, together with the space race. And of course, I can give you a lot of empirical empirical examples where these two things come come together um and so two people have written actually in in uh, one of the big science magazine uh, uh, journals um nature um palgrave communications as earth's empty spaces are filled our planet comes to be shown of blank spaces capitalist kind emerges to rescue capitalism from its terrestrial limitations, launching space rockets, placing satellites into orbit, appropriating extraterrestrial resources, and perhaps one day building colonies on distant planets like Mars. So they call it actually the, the ultimate spatial fix, um, this whole uh, new space race, which is perpetrated mainly by 
by billionaires, as you know, uh, even though they still rely on on states, um, you know, and and there's new players on the field like India, like um, um, uh, Dubai and so on and China. This brings us to the propensities of psychedelics to become a, a, a kind of a fix in them in, uh, as well. And they would become, you know, spatial fix in the more narrow Harveyan way if you would have like uh, dispensaries, which are sort of uh, bigger conglomerates where you would have... Um, you know, in every city, you might have uh, automatic dispensers or machines where you could get these things. And so the whole space industry is inextricable from, of course, the military industrial complex. I don't need to remind anyone of that. Um, but there's also sort of like, uh, you know, ways of getting beyond fossil fuels, so supposedly. Uh, all of these these very cutting edge industries are fixes in a way uh, that Harvey describes, I think, and I'm just interested in seeing how the healthcare industry and big pharma and artificial intelligence perhaps will come together and adopt psychedelics as one more way of um, uh, of, of making money. <clears throat> Very interestingly, there's at least one paper I found which argues that psychedelics might be the long duration space, uh, might be too long du uh, duration space travel in the 21st century, but citrus fruits were too long distance sea travel in the 18th, breakthrough and facilitatory. The human intergalactic experience is just beginning and it would be wise to consider the benefits ensuring of ensuring that astronauts undertaking potentially perilous space voyages benefit from a planet's rich psychedelic heritage. There is also some justification for considering the application of psychedelics in the processing and integration of the profound and spiritual experience of deep space travel. So I absolutely adore this quote because it just shows us, I think, that um, that the uh, the appropriation of whatever subversive uh, uh, potentialities of, of, of drug culture there might be is already underway uh, by the people who are imagining intergalactic um, travel. Okay, so I, I, I will skip uh, the most important part of my paper would have been uh, this, looking at the contradictions which come together in what we could call the psychedelic subject, the figure of the... Um, of a particular kind of modern individual who um, who is interested in uh, in 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 uh, in changing uh, th th their brain uh, for reasons not just uh, well the the reasons are are up for debate is it is it hedonism is it mysticism um, I think in the in the context of uh, the, the the Center for the Study of World Religions it is really uh, uh, important to look at the spiritual aspect of this, but my argument is that 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 there's there's always this 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 uh, consumerist and these these potentially racializing um, dimensions uh, that are uh, at the inception entwined with psychedelic subjectivity. Um, I was looking at Victor Turner again, and I do want to mention him briefly. He is excellent, of course, when it comes to looking at the sociality of um, of uh, uh, 
any kind of intense uh, liminal uh, experiences. And he writes at some point in his, uh, you know, famous book, uh, it is curious how often in history notions of catastrophe and crisis are connected with what what with what what one might call instant communitas. Perhaps it is not really so curious, for clearly if one anticipates the swift coming up of the world's end, there is no point in legislating into existence an elaborate system of social institutions designed to resist incursions of time. One is tempted to speculate about the relationship between the hippies and the hydrogen bomb. Often what was once seen as a literal and universal imminence of catastrophe becomes interpreted allegorically or mystically as the drama of the individual soul or as the spiritual fate of the true church on earth or as postponed to the remotest future. This concept of threat or danger to the group is importantly present, and this danger is one of the chief ingredients in the production of ex existential communitas, like the possibility of a bad trip for the narcotic communities of certain inhabitants of a modern city that bears San Francis, uh, St. Francis's name. So he's talking about the hate Ashbury. He is talking about the Franciscans and the way that they adopted uh, certain forms of a bodily discipline in a mystical way at a time in Europe when there was a lot of talk about apocalypse. And so, you know, what I want to sort of point at here is, um, is this uh, speculation that I'm making uh, between the Anthropocene's catastrophic nature, as we all know, precipitated mainly by a capitalist system, and this interest not just in sort of escaping the world by certain billionaires, but in publics across the world, millions and millions of people, I think mainly men, but we can talk about that. I think there's a lot of uh, geek geeks uh, here. Uh, involved uh, a certain kind of masculine subjectivity, which we could call the nerd, um, the techno science nerd, um, exactly at the same time as, you know, perhaps in uh, superficially speaking, different cultures where you have people interested in liminal experiences and um, uh, supposedly more mystical or, or, or you know, less uh, interested in, in, in rigor and science and sort of accuracy and prediction, but nevertheless very intense experiences of, of changing the brain um, as a different response to, to these crises, to these catastrophes. And my question is, what if they're connected? Um, and um, uh, what does that say about sort of the whiteness of of our of our uh, uh, R in the sort of universal sense predicament? Um, I was going to say something about the uh, attack on the psychedelic rave party uh, by Hamas. Uh, I was I had a slide about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I had a quote from Rolling Stone magazine about this attack. I will simply say that um uh that uh yes that i that i did do research on uh psychedelic trance music in india and uh the one of the main nationalities involved was were israelis for reasons specifically to do with with uh with that country uh but i could talk about that um if you want uh, over email or something, but um, I did want, there is this connection here, which is which is kind of personal, uh, but but um, uh, just the intensity of that um, 
of that moment, uh, I just wanted to sort of flag up. As Amanda said, there are uh, very important imaginations of cosmology, of the use of hallucinogens, uh, especially in the 60s and 1970s that need to be uh, mentioned here. And uh, I do, uh, I do find that really important. And so I can be criticized for overstating my case for saying, well, you know, the whiteness of psychedelia uh, doesn't get at the whole gamut of ways that uh, you can have subversions of white racism and uh, and all of the uh, the oppressive regimes that 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 we might have. Um, but I will end with uh, with talking about uh, sort of the whole idea of molecular revolution, um, <clears throat> and I will simply provoke us you to think about the, the, the kinds of truth that are involved in um in taking drugs um in uh religious experience and i tend to follow the uh philosopher uh, alain badiou here he's a marxist philosopher who makes very stringent distinctions between four kinds of truth procedure as he calls them so there is um, there is science. Uh, uh, there are truths produced in science. Uh, there is politics, and so the kinds of truths produced in politics would be more of the revolutionary kind. Uh, certain events, as he called them, calls them. Uh, there is the truth of love between uh, two people, um, and then there's the truth of art. Um, but uh, when it comes to futurisms and sort of uh, finding a way out of catastrophe. I do think that there are limitations of even Afrofuturism, and I, I might not make myself popular here. Uh, I think Afrofuturism and all kinds of other futurisms, indigenous futurism, et cetera, also through psychedelic um, means uh, are, are absolutely essential. But to me, the, the, they don't get at the sort of the actual sort of uh, coming together of people on the street uh, 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 you know, uh, organizing uh, for a different world that, that that are really needed. And so, you know, I'm not really developing this very much here, but but I just wanted to end on that um, because I'm sort of uh, required to from a kind of a moral point of view, I think, um, just to sort of understand what the limitations are. And this is where I find there are limitations to Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, when Guattari talks about molecular revolution, he's you know not in the same vein as Timothy Leary, but I do find that he that works better for um, for artistic experimentation rather than for uh, uh, actual street politics or uh, you know actual sort of concerted efforts of people coming together to 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 really uh, make changes in in, in society. Um, so. Uh, thanks for bearing with my chaotic approach to talks, and uh, I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. Well, those were very rich and dense presentations. Um, I myself am feeling as if what we need to do is draw out these the the, the threads that are specifically around psychedelic spirituality, um, because Amanda, you gave uh, quite a bit of attention to theosophical notions of race, which is a contested topic and it's and and, and the third eye, um, but less attention to how that bears directly on contemporary psychedelic spirituality. So I want to, and similarly Arun, quite a bit on um, the sort of capitalist uh, background, uh, but I want to ask you both 
if you could speak to um, how the use of psychedelics, especially in pursuit of transcendent or mystical experiences, is replicating these racial hierarchies um, and what evidence you want to marshal in favor of that and or do these uh, does the use of psychedelics have the pen potential to undo those racial hierarchies or uh, multiply um, in, uh, white racial identities? That's uh, something um, uh, uh, it, that might be uh, closer to Arun's language there. Um, and if so, uh, do we need to learn how to use psychedelics differently? So Amanda, do you want to try give a pass at that? Yeah, sure. I see it as kind of all in the same mix of what I was trying to present in that I think third eye expansion is a part of the psychedelic narrative as it's been um, put forward in the certainly 1960s counterculture, even today's counterculture, or if it's even a counterculture, today's subculture of psychedelic use is to open consciousness through that. And I think that's what the visual imagery that I was trying to make that link with, it really proliferates. And so the question is then, how is that connected to who has the capacity to explore those other states of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Who has the access to explore those other states of consciousness? What are the frameworks and understandings and the kind of meta structures of that journey positioned within? How did those even become ideals? Um, and I think that maybe a question that links this with what Arun is saying is that, is there a space for psychedelic exploration outside of the frame of whiteness? Um, that's what I was thinking as Arun was speaking. Certainly, you know, that's what people are looking for when they're looking toward indigenous futures. I see the way it's co-opted and pro, you know, reproducing whiteness in the contemporary scene. But certainly that wasn't created with people in the West looking toward it, right? It was there much beforehand. So I see, I kind of see that we did address it, but maybe I'm not giving you what you are asking for. Arun, you want to respond? Yes, no, thanks for that. And I realized that I didn't, you know, talk about spirituality or the actual ingestion of, of chemicals uh, uh, directly and uh, sort of took a step back and asked, uh, you know, a quite a Foucauldian question of like, how is this framed or why is there an interest in the first place? Um, but if you're forcing me to to talk about it, then I really think that um, that that it's a, 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 there's two there's two ways of thinking about this. One is so, sort of sociological, and and that would be along the lines of of Amanda and 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 my sort of ethnographies of like, yes, who is it? Who is ingesting? Why are they ingesting it? What kinds of stickiness? of uh, particular norms are instantiated so that there are these invisible barriers for uh, non-white people, for example, to, to, to participate. And so um, then the question is, uh, are there empirical examples of, um, uh, of drug practices which, which are explicitly anti-racist? And, and I, I do think 
the answer to that is is yes. I, I think there's more and more, and I'm really happy to see that. For example, in in Chakruna and and their and their work, um, there is more and more. Uh, an understanding that the the sort of the racializations of drug practices in the past should not be replicated. But then there's the sort of less sociological and more philosophical question, and and that is about you know what is transcendence? What does it mean that some people are interested in a kind of universality? And that's where I'm like, well, let us see. There is a universality in Buddhism. There is a universality in, in sort of like in, it's not just a sort of Western thing, but as you know, there's a there's there's a huge amount of literature on this drive for universalization being part and parcel of um, of capitalism and of and of and, and of white modernity. And so, uh, so yeah, so it depends on which level that we're talking about. Um, yeah. Arun, why, if, I'm, if I heard you right, you were equating transcendence and universality. Mm -hmm. Why? Those words do not mean the same thing. Um, Explain well, to me how, 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 how are you equating those? Or... They're not the same, you're right. But, but you were saying about uh, uh, because of the, the, the whiteness factor, and then you, you use the word transcending. But yes, you can have transcendence um uh in a in a different modality but if if we're sort of looking at this as within a sort of system of race then i was thinking in terms of universality yeah okay yeah um i have a question for each of you um so this first one is for for um for amanda then i have another one for you arun um so in White Utopia, Amanda, there's an interlude after the second chapter. Uh, you're interviewing a man named Nico, who's an African-American DJ at Lightning in a Bottle. Uh, I mean, I know you know this very well, so I'm just saying it for the purposes of the people who haven't, uh, who haven't read the book. But your, your perspective seems to flip from being quite skeptical of festival goers to more open to their seeking and their desire for transformation. Uh, and you write that from this point on, you bring Nico's notion um, uh, to the fore, the notion, uh, his notion, quote, that white people are on the journey of evolution um, in order to, and these are your words, to highlight the spiritual work that participants are doing in transformational festivals. I'm wondering if you could share more about this, how this shift happened for you. I know it was many years ago and the ways it changed or seemed to change your analytical approach in the book. Could you discuss how your work has come to both appreciate and critique the spiritual work, quote unquote, spiritual work that seekers um, in these psychedelic cultures are pursuing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it comes from an uncomfortable anthropological perspective, right? On the one hand, with any informant or community that I'm working with, I want to have empathy and understand how the logics of their community makes sense as they present it and live it on their, on their daily life. And on the other hand, when working with violence and atrocity, it's very difficult, right? Um, it's very difficult to have that kind of empathy when a, a community is enacting what I what I would see as violence, it raises what Arun was talking about was like the moral question at the end. Um, and so it's a kind of hard line that the book 
walks between empathy and concern or empathy and uh, at some points disgust. And it, I think that at first I was concerned with, with, with what Arun ended with was kind of like desire for street politics and viewing this as escapism, as frivolity, as white leisure, um, as violence. And then I have another part of my view that kind of says, well, maybe there is change that's happening through these experiences. And the hard part, I think, is that that change is very hard to track. Um, people go back to their home lives after events like this, and sometimes they re-engage re in all of the same stuff that they did before. And it was just kind of like a whimsy, a fantasy, a dream that they've awoken from and nothing changes. But then when I was interviewing people, I found so many people who had actually had pretty radical change in their lives. Um, people who quit their jobs. They always say like at Burning Man, for example, when you go home for three days, don't do anything, right? Don't break up with your spouse. Don't break up with your boyfriend. Don't uh, move out of your house. Don't change your country. Don't quit your job because people do. Um, and I think that is interesting as to it's kind of like a ethereal change that is happening in people's minds, even if they've gone to something that is leisurely, fanciful, white-centered, problematically political, um, but, but it's still an axe change. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Arun, um, this is, so the discourse and awareness around race uh, and racial injustice has changed considerably since you published Psychedelic White in 2007. Uh, I mean, you mentioned this in your talk, um, especially it's changed, especially in uh, here in the United States, but I think globally. Do you feel like your um, understanding of racial viscosity has changed in light of events of recent years? And are there ways you see this material view of race playing out in the United States differently? Hmm. Um, uh, I think uh, on a theoretical level, I think I did change and became more of, I never call myself a Marxist, but I did after, you know, the book is from 2007, 2008, we had, you know, obviously a huge uh, change in, in, in uh, or, or a huge crisis, 2008, 2009. Um, and so uh, theoretically, I've yeah, I've, I've this whole idea of racial capitalism. Um, uh, I've I've been I've been working on a lot more and black Marxism and so on. Um, I think uh, also, but so 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 uh, when it comes to understanding racism, I think that would be a change in Minneapolis. So George Floyd was murdered uh, very in my neighborhood just a few minutes from where i live and so i have been affected a lot uh thinking about structural racism in the united states um i i i, I don't think my politics have changed enormously since the book uh but i do want to affirm what Amanda was saying about the difficulty of such ethnography. So I, I'm being very critical today. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it, I'm seeing the first snow in, in Minnesota and it's making me a bit grumpy. But I, 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 you know, on other days, I will be a little bit more um, 
gentle in my critique of 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 the whiteness of psychedelia i do agree that it is possible to have i wouldn't call it transcendence and you know to be very honest i also wouldn't call it maybe spiritual uh for myself but there is uh, definitely a sense that these are very powerful means of um uh, these these are age old powerful means of 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 thinking differently, feeling differently, uh, social socializing differently, uh, imagining differently, and so I'm I'm not going to sort of just come out against this whole um, arena of 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 human you know um, processes, uh, but but what I do want to uh, sort of say on a political level is that it is not politics for me. And so when I read Timothy Leary, when I read, uh, if I may, just very, very quickly, uh, I'll just read one quote that I found in Tikkun magazine, if I may, and it goes as follows. Uh, he, this is, he's writing right after 9-11, and, um, and he writes uh, in Tikkun magazine, as you know, a, a, a progressive Jewish spiritual magazine. On a more massive scale, I can envision devoting a single day in the near future in which, say, 5 million people worldwide took a hand, healthful dose of MDMA or hashish or psilocybin and opened up their hearts and minds to each other and to the universe. Such a rite of pure Dionysian grace involving communal song, dance, and invocations of prayer would strum the invisible wires of the emergent global consciousness consciousness network, striking harmonious chord from Chicago to Bangkok, Sydney to Sao Paulo, London to Delhi, Durban to Tehran. And so this is where, you know, I'm not going to ridicule that, but this is where I'm emphatically say, okay, that is not a solution. You know, I don't think any conflict in the world or any of the catastrophes that I was briefly hinting at uh, is, is going to be solved uh, by, by taking psychedelics. Uh, it it can be fun. It can sort of uh, be be useful in, in in therapeutic settings. But I, I don't have the same sort of evangelical. Um, and I think that I'm just pointing out sort of that danger of the Timothy Learys and so on, sort of that coming back. And 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 I think we should read Leary very seriously. Um, uh, but there is just this sort of uh, eclecticism and this evangel evangel evangelical sort of uh, drive, uh, which I would say repeats some of the sort of troubling racial tropes uh, on some level, as Amanda was talking about. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, this is a question for both of you, and then I'll and then I'll, I'll, I'll open it up to any questions you have for each other. A number of the comments, I think. Um, prompted by both your papers, have, have raised the question of, um, aren't there interesting um, sites and instances of say black psychedelic culture or psychedelic culture of, of people of color? The, the question I, I take you to be posing, or maybe that you're not, but I'll pose to you is, um, there seems to be, you're saying there's a kind of implicit whiteness to psych psychedelic spirituality, global psychedelic spirituality. And on the one hand, that it means that it's being undertaken by white people. But I also take it to mean almost that the, the assumptions, the framework of global psychedelic spirituality is white. It's not just that it's white people doing it, it's that the entire kind of framework for it is pervaded by whiteness. So then the question becomes, when people of color pursue psychedelic spirituality, are they trapped in 
a framework of whiteness? Or is there is there a way for white people pursuing psychedelic spirituality to deconstruct or escape or at least problematize the white frame of psychedelic spirituality, which I take you to be exposing? And what about people of color in pursuing psychedelic spirituality? Do they too need to work to escape the implicit whiteness of the entire enterprise? Um, so I hope that question makes sense. And if you wish to bend it to your own purposes or tell me that it doesn't make sense and it's that it's uh, ill-conceived, Ill I completely am open to that too. I'll say something since I tend to be the person put in the first position uh, and everyone will comment. Thanks, Amanda, for going first. Yeah, no problem. I'll take one for the team. Um, I think I'm a little concerned with the ways in which we're talking about psychedelic culture um, as, as a singular thing, because I'm pretty, I'm consciously aware that there's a lot of psychedelic cultures that have operated separately until the 19th, 20th century. Um, there's a long history of psychedelics in different parts of the world. Sorry, um, I mean I mean the contemporary global psychedelic spirituality when I'm, and that may also not be a singular, but I- Yeah, I'm maybe that's where I'm getting hooked up um, because I think that, you know, we have uh, in Mexico, peyote and in Latin America, ayahuasca that existed before white tourists went to go participate in those cultures. Um, and the concern that I have is that the ways in which I think, even outside of psychedelics, the ways in which beauty, clarity, um, you know, spirituality is a bit of a nebulous signifier, but but um, in tuneness, high vibration, all of these um, ideals of new age, spiritual, yogic, psychedelic circuits being in tune, um, I think those commonsensical ideas that we uh, don't trace to whiteness are actually deeply informed by white normativities that were developed as these discourses came into popularity in the modern West. Um, so that's kind of what I am targeting, not necessarily that whiteness pervades all of psychedelic activity globally. I think that's that's false. Um, but also, even in places where whiteness maybe didn't shape the conversation in 1500, 1300, 800, whenever in the history of, of humanity, I think today it is increasingly doing so as we look at ayahuasca tourism or ganja tourism in India or um peyote tourism in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, I, I agree that, uh, and I would go further. So not, not only is psychedelic maybe a Euro white European term in itself, um, uh, yes. but, 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 but also the, you know, you, you uh, uh, there are different ways of attaining altered states of consciousness, let's say, uh, with with other kinds of drugs that we might not immediately say are psychedelic or uh, without drugs at all. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of techniques of, of getting into a, a different kinds of state, uh, whether it's for pleasure or whether it is for spiritual means. And so, so first of all, I, I sort of trouble the distinction between hedonism and, and spirituality. Uh, second of all, I trouble the distinction between psychedelic and other drugs and then third of all i 
trouble the distinction between taking drugs and other kinds of you know practices um but but your question is completely legitimate uh uh, Charlie, from a sort of ethical point of view, like where do we go from here? And then I will simply say, well, the more awareness that people taking, you know, hallucinogens have about the sort of racialized history uh, and the very inception of um, of drug culture, and you know, from that 1943 moment that sort of LSD was first ingested and, and how it traveled from there, just knowing the history, knowing just like anything to do with, with structural racism and structural violence, just uh, what, what Black Lives Matter and what uh, uh, the American Indian movement and what uh, all, all you know, all, all, all the feminist movement and, and uh, LGBTQ plus movement has always been saying. It's, it's not to sort of stop with sexuality or stop with <clears throat> listening to black music or stop with taking drugs uh or stop with with traveling but it's it's just first of all being informed of one's own privilege and why one comes to a certain practice um that is the first step uh and then seeing just just that it's 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 possible to sort of uh engage uh and it's but 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 this, this, there's still a lot of, you know, um, unknowing about this these structural features. Okay, thank you for entertaining that question. Um, however ill-conceived, would you like to ask a question to each other? Many, but... Uh... I have one that comes from my own, I'll go first again, uh, comes from my own desire um, and optimism that that um, I've heard a lot in, in it's popular in indigenous studies and ethnic studies, this concern with travel and tourism and science as inherently violent, inherently abusive, inherently consumptive. And uh, I, I agree and I also, love to travel and I also love knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge, right? We're all in academia and some of that desire and drive to know, um, I want to be more optimistic about um, that it can be positive, like we, you know, polio vaccines and such comes from a desire to know. So I just wanted to ask you, Arun, is there any room for that? Or where does that fit? Where does that kind of optimism fit in to a totalizing violence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is where I, I lean on uh, on Lambert you again. You know, he does have this, this sense of science being able to uh, have breakthroughs. He's, he's not a positivist and he's also not sort of a naive, well, science can be good for the people kind of thing. So he's he's a He's a mathematician, so he, he, he traffics mainly in sort of very high high theory, set theory, and so on, and mathematical logic. But loosely based on him, him uh, and sort of, you know, a Marxist tradition, but there's a lot of feminist scientists who would say a similar thing. Um, obviously, science is... Um, is is it has to be part of the solution to things like climate change and pandemics and so on. Uh, it's just that that again that there needs to be this vigilance uh, from the get go about it being diverted to 
uh, profit making and to uh, surveillance and to, you know, within academia, a lot of ego mania and so on and a lot of competitiveness. And so sometimes I think we need like a new Hippocratic oath, just like doctors are like, there's no question about it. We're always going to be uh, trying to save people's lives, you know, like is happening right now in Gaza. Uh, we're sort of impartial in that same way, I think in, 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 in science, what would hope. And then going to fucking Mars is not part of the scheme as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't help anyone. So any kind of Hippocratic oath would say, well, obviously that is not a project that we should we should pursue uh so um so yeah so so when it comes to sort of uh science techno science uh leaning on people like donna haraway um you know there is definitely place for optimism because but it's just not this sort of starry-eyed kind of optimism which just believes that science with a big s is always going to save people because what it has done historically since the renaissance is been very good for colonialism and very good for capitalism and you know yes there are vaccines and so on and i'm using my iphone every day but uh but on the whole it's 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 been you know as you know yeah full of externalities which we're sort of now having to deal with and and the, the next generations so just some kind of ethics from the get-go that that it, it's it should be for you know, for everyone and and um, and yeah, science for the people, not for profit, I guess, including pharmaceutical science and any kind of new drugs. Like why on earth was fentanyl, you know, made? Uh, it was a Belgian uh, uh, chemist, apparently. I don't know much of the history, but that that is an example of like, just like the, like atomic energy that you think, okay, why if they knew that they were working, if they knew what the consequences were, um then the pursuit itself was was not right and so uh yeah so so i see these parallels between a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in sort of psychedelic spirituality and sort of elsewhere in society thank you both so much I mean, we're over the hour and um the, this has been really, really rich, very challenging. Um, I have hosts of other questions that I want to pose to you that we don't have time for. Uh, there's questions in the Q&A queue. We'll forward those to you both so you see what people uh, posted. Um, but I want to thank you both once again for your time and for your, um, for your insight and the seriousness with which you are pursuing this research. I think it's fair to say that there's... The field of the field of research into psychedelics, especially humanistic research into psychedelics, um, is going through a maturation, and you both are a real big part of that maturation. And I'm grateful to you both. Um, I want to announce for those of you who are still with us that the next event in our ser series will be uh, on psychedelics and philosophy, metaphysics and meaning in psychedelia that's on monday november 6th so upcoming it's at an odd time 1 30 to 3 p.m eastern time it's an odd time for us but it's meant to accommodate uh, our two guests who will be joining us from europe so middle of the afternoon on monday the 6th and um there's a link to it in the chat so arun amanda thank you both so much and um have a wonderful night
Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for the audience. And, and also thank you uh, to Laurie for uh, for organizing everything uh, behind the scenes. I, I think I didn't mention her. Um, Laurie's still on, dropping some links in the chat. So yes. thank you, so, <laughs> Okay. Good night, everyone. Take care. Good night. Thank you. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.